From Luminary, this is Karamo, a podcast. Hey friends, welcome to Karamo. I'm your friend Karamo, and this is episode two. Look at us, we just going through, we're going through. Now this interview is the first installment in my Inspo to Go series. Now Inspo to Go interviews are focused around one person, most of the time a friend of mine whose journey has personally inspired me to be better, to learn more, to try more. Inspo to Go guests are often focused around one very specific topic that many of us have experienced. And I want to introduce you to this person because I know their story will educate you, but also inspire you. So before we start today's episode, I want to issue a trigger warning. In this episode, I will be talking and growing with someone who has come forward during the Me Too movement to share their experience with sexual abuse. Now, we will not be going into detail about the sexual abuse, but my guests will be sharing their experience, what they learned, and how they hope to inspire others. But I want to make sure for anyone out there who could be dealing with this, this is an opportunity for you to go back, listen to the first episode or listen to other episodes. And when you do have an opportunity where you feel like you're in a space to listen, this is a great conversation. Trust me, where you're going to learn so many new things and hear perspectives that you might not have heard of, especially when it comes to the Me Too conversation. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. So friends, my inspo to go guest today is Drew Dixon. Drew is a former A&R executive at Def Jam Records and Arista Records, two of the world's biggest record labels where she helped launch some of the biggest artists. But that is not what put Drew in the spotlight. Drew was allegedly sexually abused and harassed while at those companies by hip-hop media moguls Russell Simmons and L.A. Reid and found the courage to share her story. Now, I have to say alleged, friends, just to let you know, because this is still playing out in the court of law right now. But I still wanted Drew to come on and share her story because Drew is an inspiration to me because of her strength and conviction. And I know once you hear her, you'll be inspired too. So friends, I want to introduce you to a true inspiration, Drew Dixon. Hi, how are you? Thank you for that very kind introduction. It's an honor to be here. Listen, that introduction was based off of truth. You are just an exceptional woman. Like I've been following your story from the beginning and I just was like, wow. Drew is someone that um, if I had daughters, I had sons, but even with my sons, I'm like, I want them to look up to her and see her courage, her strength, her tenacity and, you know, be you. How does that feel to know that people look at you at the space now and being like, this is the girl I want to be like or woman I want to be like? 
Wow. Well, you know, first of all, thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. I'm not even sure I've fully taken that in yet. You know, you mentioned your son. And for me, a huge part of the decision in the first place was thinking about my kids. I have a daughter and a son. Um, and I wanted them to be able to say or to be able to say to them if they asked me later, looking back at the Me Too moment, you know, as adults asking me, mom, did that ever happen to you? And, and I, I didn't want to be able to, you know, have to say to them it did, but I didn't, I didn't do anything. I didn't speak out. I wanted to be brave and I wanted to show them that I was doing the right thing, even if it was the hard thing mm. to do. And so the audience in some ways was really just my two kids, a black daughter and a black son, and also thinking about the implications of that as a black woman making this choice. What I love about what you just said is in talking about your kids is that they were your audience of how you were going to self-reflect. Right. And I think that's a beautiful thing because I don't think a lot of people take the time out to look at the people around them and say, this is my audience. This is the people that are going to be closest to looking at me, to seeing how I'm acting, seeing how I'm doing moving through the world. And what message am I sending to my audience? Right. And I think that's a beautiful sentiment of my kids are right here watching. And if we can remember that, it will give us the courage to try to go on that journey to find bravery and strength in sharing our truths. But I want to go back a little bit and start from the beginning. Um, like I just highlighted before, you were in the music industry for many years. Yeah. And what I know from friends who are in the music industry is that breaking into the boys club when it comes to the music industry can be really hard for women, much less an African-American woman. Mm -hmm. And you did it and kept rising to the top. So can you paint that picture for us of what it was like to be a woman, a black woman in the music industry? Yeah. You know, I just made up my mind from the beginning that I was going to do it. And I wasn't going to even entertain the idea of giving up. I actually grew up as the daughter of two politicians. So when I was a little kid, I knocked on doors and asked people to vote for my parents. And a lot of them told me <laughs> they hated my parents and they slammed the door in my face. And I had to keep going and knock on the next door. And I feel like that taught me this sense of just sort of not backing down and pushing forward for my mission and my purpose. And I really believe that making hip hop records was my calling at that time in my 20s. Rap music wasn't the big mainstream commercial force that it became. I really just believe that it was this powerful genre that was lifting up black voices in particular. And I was always a huge music lover. And so it spoke to me and I felt like I had the taste to be able to predict what was going to be great. And I just made up my mind that I was going to do it. So I would just, I mean, I answered phones. I was a, an intern at Jive Records, a receptionist at Warner Brothers Records, a receptionist at Empire Artist Management. And the whole time I would just sort of tell anyone that I met that I thought was in a position to give me an opportunity. My name is Drew Dixon. I want to do hip hop A&R and the hot new records are boom, boom, boom. And eventually people mm. were like, oh, wow, you're Drew Dixon. You want to do A&R. And the hot new records were boom, boom, boom. Like, you know what you're talking about. And one of those people was actually Russell Simmons, who I met through a couple of mutual acquaintances. And eventually I got the shot. So, you know, and then when I got there, you know, I, it's not like I was given the lane. You know, he didn't come to the office. He forgot to tell Lior Cohen, who was running the company, that I was even starting that day. 
you know, my direct boss, like sort of had assumptions about why Russell hired me that were not accurate. So I had to then fight all over again. Like I got the job, but then I had to fight to do the job. And again, I just decided yeah. I'm going to do it. And, you know, I had ideas and I would, you know, tell Russell, I think that this Method Man interlude should be a duet with a woman. How about Mary J. Blige? You know, I think we should, you know, whatever. Like I, I just thought like how you just went over like one of the most iconic hip hop <laughs> songs to date. <laughs> like that is like still a song that like I'm, I'm about to be 40. My kids still jam to that song. I like how you're like, yeah, so I just put together one of the most iconic duets ever. And um, yeah. <laughs> right. I just, you know, I just heard it. And I was like, wait, this is like a sonnet. This is the most beautiful thing I've ever heard. Like from a rapper yeah. to his girl, like, it can't just be an interlude. Like we got to go with this. We got to, you know, make this a record. And I just pushed, you know, if I believed, I believed, you know, when I believe in something, I just see the end zone and I figure out how to get there. And I, it's almost like the blows, the pushback are invisible to me um, when I'm on a mission. And so that's how I moved my career forward. Now, what happened to me personally as a woman to my body and my spirit with the harassment and the assault was something different. And I, yeah. I tried to approach it the same way, you know, after the assault, I quit Def Jam, I was going to give up, but then I had this number one soundtrack that got me on the radar with other companies and Clive Davis offered me a job. And then I, I had a great time working for Clive. And similarly, if I had an idea, even if he didn't agree, I would just push, push and let him give me a shot until I got it made, whether that was getting Lauren Hill to produce a Rosa Silla Rose for Aretha Franklin or getting Wyclef to do My Love Is Your Love for Whitney or, you know, like signing Q-Tip and putting out Vibrant Thing, signing Brand Nubian and making a reunion album. Like I just sort of, if I believed, I believed. But what I don't think I fully understood was that the personal stuff, the harassment, the assault was taking a toll on me internally that was breaking me down. And it's one thing to be told no when you have a creative idea. It's one thing to try to sign Kanye and be told no, or to sign trying to sign John Legend and be told no. Like that's hard. And I can push through that. But to be objectified, sexualized, harassed, berated, and then physically violently attacked, I tried to just shake it off and keep moving the way I did when I had setbacks creatively and professionally. But that was really like it was it, it was breaking me down. It really it really damaged me and and really almost broke me in ways that almost didn't catch up with me until later. And so that took 22 years of real growth and reflection to get to a point where I was able to push back for myself in the way I fought for my artist and fought for the records I believed in. So it was sort of like I had to connect the dots with my drive and and fierce commitment to my artists and to the craft and to the music. And I had to figure out how to summon that same self-worth for myself, to stand up for myself. And that took a lot longer. That was harder. So where did you find the tenacity to keep pushing, even with all this BS that was coming along with the music industry, both the rejection just about the professional side, but also with, as you expressed, being violated and harassed and hurt? Where did you find that tenacity to keep going? I know you said it was breaking you. But, but there had to have been something in your spirit. In some ways, 
it's because there was a cause that was greater than me again. The Me Too movement was greater than me personally. It was greater than my personal suffering. You know, the idea of black women getting a piece of this moment while it lasted was bigger than me and my personal suffering. So I think because of that, again, it was almost like fighting for a record or an artist. I was fighting for my people, my sisters, you know, survivors. And so I was able to find that courage and use that piece of tenacity that went back to the fighter who knocked on doors almost as a kid to speak out in the Me Too moment in a way that I don't think I would ever have spoken out just for myself privately, you know, um, to like, you know, I don't know. I, I didn't, I, I thought even when I walked into the New York times and, and told them my story and then I decided, you know, a couple weeks later to go on the record, I thought that I was doing like a public service. I was contributing to the me too movement. I didn't know that I was doing something for myself until I started to meet other Russell Simmons survivors and Weinstein survivors. And I started to understand that night better when I understood that he did this again and again and again to other women and he lured them into spaces and he set traps and he attacked them. And I learned that this me too decision that I made that I thought was a one way communication where I would tell the world something that happened to me and go on with my life was a feedback loop that would change my life. And I would learn more about myself and I would suddenly process the trauma. Mm. So I didn't really do it for myself, but I have evolved and become stronger because I did it. Yeah. Um, and that's not something I expected. That's not what motivated me. I was motivated by the cause and the service, the idea of doing something brave for something bigger than, than myself. And that's always propelled me. Yeah. And I've, I've learned really that I have to find the strength and the self-compassion to be as strong for myself as I have been for other causes. So that's what I'm learning still in this moment. When Harvey Weinstein's story broke in 2017, many women were transported back to those moments in their life, similar to you, where you had to confront or relive their own experiences. And I remember you saying in an article as a black woman, I don't know if this applies to me, talking about the Me Too movement. Why did you have that thought? White women have always been, whether the actions line up with the ideal, at least the ideal of white women in America has been they are placed on a pedestal. We were placed on a slave auction block. Okay, that's how our experience here began from the beginning. Okay, we had no bodily autonomy from the second they put us in chains and took us from our communities in Africa and walked us onto that boat. It was over. It was a wrap. It's been a wrap for us from the beginning. Okay, you know, in America, as a as a black woman, as a black pre as a black pubescent girl. Okay. Raping a black woman was not just something you did if you were sadistic. You could do it as a business decision because that could generate you a whole entire new asset, a slave for free. Wow. It's real. Yeah. Okay. That's our story in America. And I'm clear about that. You know, I'm a light-skinned black woman, but I don't have a single white relative I've ever met or known of. So I got to be light-skinned based on a history in this country that is not dignified in any way, shape, or Form. It is a violent history. And I'm very aware of that. That is the legacy of my sisters in this country. And so just because the world may sort of kind of maybe possibly be interested in the Harvey Weinstein survivors, which they were like barely interested in. And that was a jaw dropping watershed moment that I was so 
proud to witness as a woman and as a survivor. But the extent to which society was barely willing to give those women the time of day. I understand that as a black woman, I am all the way at the back of the Me Too bus. I know this. Mm, Yeah. You know, I was assuming this wouldn't apply to us. I was hoping I wouldn't have to make the choice because I also understand that for me, I'm not just thinking about does this apply to us? I'm thinking about what are the implications of this for my brothers? You know, I'm aware of the Central Park Five. Russell Simmons is a rapist. Those boys were innocent. Yeah. So I'm clear that there's this confusion. We don't occupy the same space that they occupy. And so I had to really think about what does this even mean for me as a black woman? What does this mean for black men? And I thought about it and I watched Jenny Lumet come forward. I thought about the conversations I wanted to be able to have with my children. Right now, they don't want to talk about it. They're mad that I'm even doing this. Okay, to be clear about my audience, yeah. my audience is not happy right now. Mm. But I'm hoping my audience of my children will be happy one day yeah. when they look back and they understand the choice that I made. But I decided to walk to the front of the Me Too bus and take a seat at the front because I wanted to have this conversation and make sure that Black women who have been more vulnerable to sexual violence than anybody... I mean, literally, it was a good business decision to rape us, okay? Let's include our story in this conversation, and then let's have the tough conversation about the way black men are falsely accused of sexual violence again and again and again without excusing the men in our community who are actually guilty. Let's do it. Let's have the conversation. But, you know, that was tough. That was all a very tough, tough series of decisions. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. But as, a, as an African-American man, I do know that history. And there's another layer is, yes, there is this loop, as you said, and there's also these different sides, but there's also within the community this sort of like, okayness with, mm-hmm. you know, allowing someone who has been um, sexually abusive to young black women or young black boys, but specifically young black women to just say, it's okay. You know, like I know early on, because I'm the youngest of four sisters, 
I remember house conversations in my household where my father was one of the first people I know who was like, none of you can listen to R. Kelly in the house. And I remember thinking, what is going on? I, I don't understand. He's playing music that I like. And he was taking a stand. Wow. And I would remember these heated conversations around this man has alleged to been dating a 15 year old. That's my mm. daughter right there. And I'm not going to support this. And without having any of the facts that we have now, it was just a stance. But even what we've seen now in 2019, so many people within the African-American community are like, well, he still makes good music and I still like him. Mm -hmm. And there's not this accountability that should be held. What do we say, or what could you say to the African-American community to say, about checking their their actions and understanding their responsibility? Well, so trauma is real and trauma is deep. And post-traumatic slave disorder is real and it's deep. Mm. It has physical implications. We're seeing it in the way that we are dying in disproportionate numbers in the you know coronavirus pandemic. We are more vulnerable in all of these ways that are invisible to the larger society. And they're in many ways invisible to us because we just live with it. It's always all we've ever known. Mm. And I think we live with emotional trauma in the same way. We just minimize it. We shake it off. You know, we're not weak. You know, we're not like white folks. We don't need to sit up and talk to a therapist. You know, we're tough. We got this. You know, we're not coddled. And I think we rationalize this very toxic behavior because we've learned, we're like inured to just living with the suffering. There's so much grief and disappointment and shame and pain that we live with as black people every single day on every single level, whether it's chronic physical pain or chronic emotional pain. And we've never had a way out. And so we don't know that we might have a way out now. Yeah. And, you know, it's time to put it down. It's not serving us. It's not helping us. It's perpetuating a cycle. It's not making us brave. It's not making us race loyal. It's making us broken. And mm. I understand the, the impulse to just power through. I've done it in my own life. Again, I understand this idea that we are so proud of our black girl magic and our strength and the long, quiet suffering of the black people. You know what? It's not cute. It's not a good look. It's not helping us. And you can see us dying in the coronavirus as a result of it. It takes a toll and it's happening on an emotional level and internalizing this trauma and shaking it off and talking about, well, what about Weinstein and all of this other stuff, you know, as a way to deflect from the damage we are inflicting on ourselves and tolerating for ourselves. I get it. You know what? I've been black my whole entire life. I've been black and proud my whole entire life. And I understand the instinct to want to protect our own, but we are protecting our own at the expense of our own, at the expense of our babies, at the expense of our vulnerable. Yeah. And we have to do better for our own sake. You know, you talked about this impulse to power through, which it hit my soul when you said that, because I look around to so many people, especially within the African-American community, and I'm like, there is that sort of like, well, you know what? We've been through it. We're just going to keep marching on instead of like really focusing on that moment. For any woman that is out there that is in the African-American community or period, who is sort of like saying to themselves, I'm just going to power through. Can you talk about your process to not power through so that you could come to this clarity and find this strength? 
Yeah. So first of all, to anyone who is a survivor out there, a victim, because there's a, there, I also get a little bit, I'm not, I don't think we should skip past victim and get to survivor. I'm both. I'm a victim and I am a mm. survivor. At the same time, the victim carries the pain and I'm not so busy trying to cue the montage at the end of the movie and get to the survivor part with the cape. I am still a victim and I'm not going to dishonor that pain by skipping past that. So I will say to every woman and man and boy and child and anybody out there who is a victim or, and or a survivor, congratulations for waking up today. Congratulations for being present in this moment. Congratulations for hanging in there. That is already a triumph and a victory. But also understand that on the other side of that strength, there is a pain that is there, whether you face it or not. It is corrosive. It is acidic. It's like a cancer and it's growing. It's working its way out. It's running in the background. It's causing you to make choices that are maybe not the healthiest choices for you. And you may not know it. You may think you're past it. I thought I was past it. I thought I was good. I put a life together that I liked relatively well and thought I was okay. And I look back at that life now and I realize that it was sort of a shadow life in some ways. And it's not going to break you. I promise you. It's not weak to look at the pain. It's like the monster under the bed. Turn on the light and look at it. It's not as bad as you think. Face it. And you will find another kind of strength, the strength of standing in your truth, the strength of knowing that you are bigger than your fear. Somebody asked me at a panel recently if I was afraid that I would now be known for the rest of my life as the woman who was raped by Russell Simmons. And I said that I was afraid of that. I was afraid of that for 22 years. It's one of the reasons I never spoke out. And I realized that moment when the woman asked me that question, that by speaking out, I had literally broken the spell because I don't think about it anymore. And that literally being afraid of being known by it was its own prison, its own cage. The fear of being constrained by it gives it power over you. Facing it, you unlock the door to the cage. You can walk out. You can click your heels three times or you could go home. Okay. If you face it, you can be free of it. Being afraid of it doesn't make you stronger than it. It, it makes it confine you. It's not weak to look at your pain and you will find another kind of strength. That is powerful. In that same vein, when you were looking at your pain, what was the support systems that you had so that other people can say, oh, maybe this is who or what I can do to find that courage and look at my pain? So that's tough. You know, I had been in therapy for a couple of years by the time the Me Too moment happened, working on some of this, you know, related trauma. Um, and so I actually, I spoke out to the New York Times without letting my therapist know because I really hadn't been seeing my therapist in a while because it was expensive, to be completely honest with you. And mm -hmm. I did reach out to some of my closest friends who'd emerged as real, steady, reliable support systems through some, some other tough stuff I'd gone through to alert them that this was coming. And one of them reached out to my therapist on my behalf with my permission. And she was like, girl, I must spot you some sessions because you, you need support. Um, and then I realized that I really did need support. I actually didn't even realize until I was sitting outside of my therapist's office waiting to go in, I started to fall apart knowing that I was like five minutes away from finally getting support. Yeah. And this was like the week after the New York Times article came out. I really had convinced myself I, I was good and I wasn't, I wasn't good. Um, and so I would say, you know, 
it's, there's this idea of intentional family. You know, some people who support you will be the people who were born into your life. And some people who support you will be the people who have emerged in your life as real, true, blue allies. And I would make sure that as you proceed to confront this kind of trauma and pain, you enlist a few people, even if it's just one or two, and you let them know what you're going through and you let them know that you might need their help and you try to let them know before you need it. Um, because when you need it, you might really be in too dark of a place to ask for it. And, um, so I would say, try to find people who can, you know, get your back. Yeah. Support can come from those who are born into your life or who emerge into your life. That's a beautiful way of summing that up because it just lets you know, like there is resources all around you. If you can't find someone in your family that you trust, then there could be someone on the outside who will find the courage to stand by you, to support you, to do what your friend did and say, girl, let me drop you some sessions, which that mm -hmm. is a dope friend. I'm going to let you know right now, right. like... <laughs> I'm like, somebody came to me and was like, yeah, let me drop you. You know, everybody's like, hey, you need this or that. But no one's ever said to me, hey, can I drop you some um, therapy sessions? Because right. so you now have a documentary that is coming out. Can you tell me a bit of, about the documentary? Yeah. So the documentary is called On the Record. I'm really proud of it. It's represented over two years of my life. I met the filmmakers as I was deciding myself whether or not I would even speak to the New York Times and go on the record. And so the relationship really evolved along with my own sort of post me to, like my own me to evolution has aligned and dovetailed with this experience of being in this film, which has been really surreal and um, sometimes really scary and um, was especially scary for me in the sense that, you know, the idea of revisiting this on a bigger scale than I already did in the New York Times in a film was really daunting and was something I really grappled with. It was a very hard decision. And um, I really agonized over it. And I really actually built a stronger relationship with the filmmakers over the course of that soul-searching process. And really it was from that soul-searching process that the focus of the film evolved to examine the double bind faced by black women, because that was really the thing I struggled with the most was, do I really want to kick the hornet's nest in a movie? I already spoke my truth in the New York times. Why am I going to go back and do it again in a platform or on a platform that is more visible where my face will be a part of it in a way that it is not in an article that will be consumed more you know, in more, you know, in greater numbers by people that are fans of Russell Simmons and hip hop and the music that Russell Simmons and L.A. Reid made. You know, that was a really hard choice. But the agony I was having in making the choice led to really tough conversations with the filmmakers about my dilemma as a black woman. And that is really how the film evolved to frame my story in the broader story of the double bind that we face as black women for all the reasons we talked about earlier in this podcast as, you know, women who have never been protected in America in terms of our bodily autonomy and also the vulnerability of our men to false accusations of sexual violence and the complicated decision-making process that goes into exploring this issue because it's important to lift up black women without 
causing collateral damage to Black men. Because I struggled with that so much in making the decision and was explaining to the filmmakers that that was my real dilemma, they became interested in that as a question to explore in the film. And they did a really beautiful job. They really did. They did a really beautiful job of exploring a question that to me was so obvious. I've been Black and a woman my whole life. So to me, this is as obvious as the sky is blue. But to them, it was like, wow, we never thought about how this is more complicated for you as a Black woman. This would be a really fascinating thing to reveal to other people who, like us, have the privilege of being sort of isolated from this level of complexity in terms of thinking about the Me Too movement as a Black woman. And so their curiosity about my anxiety really led to a film that I think beautifully, you know, begins a conversation. I think it's just the beginning of a conversation about not just what happened to me and Salai and Sherry and Jenny and the other Russell Simmons survivors in the film, but also a conversation about Black women and the way we have been plundered in this country and the urgent need to have a conversation about making that stop. I know that you said that your audience, your kids right now, get embarrassed or don't like the fact that you're talking about, you know, your truth and your story. But what I do know to be true is that when they grow up, that they are going to love and admire you even more than you can even imagine, because I get chills when you talk. And I just think about how much you're impacting not only this conversation, but also the culture. And I'm just so thankful for your voice and the fact that you are inspiring so many people to know that their story is valid, that they are loved, and that they have the strength within them to speak out, to get support, and then also to know that there is a different side to every coin and that you're bringing light to this without damaging the community, but also teaching the community so they can grow. So Drew, thank you so much for being with me today and for sharing and just being one of the most inspirational people I know. Oh, well, thank you. And I just want to say I'm doing this not to hurt my community. I'm doing this because I love my people and I want hey. us to be better for ourselves. So thank you for saying that. And thank you for everything you do. I am a huge fan of yours. So thank you for lifting people up every day. Oh, in your thank you. We in there together. We in there together. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Well, have a great day, Drew. Thank you so much. You too. Thank you, Grown. <laughs> Friends, I'm sure you have learned so much more about the experiences individuals have who have been sexually abused, but also how race plays into the Me Too movement and given us all new perspectives to think about and to share with others in our lives. You know, for anyone who has experienced sexual abuse, I want to make sure you know that you're not alone. If you look at the link in this bio, there will be a resource available to you that you can call if you want to talk to someone and share your story, because there are people out there who want to support you and be there for you. And I just want to let you know, I'm so thankful to anyone who comes forward and is able to share their truth and share what they've experienced, because through their courage and through their conviction, we all are growing and learning, and they are helping to make this world a safer place for so many more. So friends, as always, thank you for listening and growing with me. Make sure to hit me up on Instagram and Twitter at Karamo to let me know your feelings about today's episode. And till next time, please take care of yourself and each other. And I can't wait for you to hear the next episode. Mm-hmm.
Karamo, a podcast, is an entertainment show. For advice or support on any emotional or mental challenges, please contact a licensed professional in your town. This show was produced by Karamo, Nick Pinella of Workhouse Media, and assisted by Ellie Charles. All music composed by Ernie Wooden and the Big Woozy Band, and all episodes are edited by Nathan Moody. Thank you for listening and growing with us. Hey, friends! Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.